Every minute of Narrative's reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Narrative, where truth lives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to tonight's edition of Narrative. I'm Zev Shalev. We have a great show for you. We are likely just days away from the indictment of former President Donald Trump for seditious conspiracy charges or other charges relating to the January the 6th attempted coup. Special counsel Jack Smith has not made a final decision, or at least not made it publicly known, but what is publicly available suggests that this is no longer a matter of if, but when. Here's Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr, on Face the Nation. Have you already testified before the special counsel? If they, if they called me in as a witness, of course I would testify. But all I said was what I said, you know, what I recounted in my book about this false story about a stolen election. Have you talked to them in any way behind the scenes, if well, not I, formal testimony? Well, I'm not going to get into any communications I had with the government, but I don't expect to be a witness, but I'll be glad to be one if I'm called. Trump was just indicted and arraigned in the records case. Do you believe he's a target potentially in the January 6th case? Yes, and I've said from the beginning, by the way, I've defended him when I think there's cases that are unfair, like the one up in New York and so forth. And I've always said I think the January 6th case will be a hard case to make because of First Amendment interests. But I'm actually starting to think they will pull the trigger on that, and I would expect it to be this summer. Trump's indictment for espionage and now possible sedition charges would raise significant questions about his entire presidency and also raise the specter of actual imprisonment. Legal analysts and sources close to the investigation have suggested that special counsel Jack Smith is preparing to charge Trump with seditious conspiracy. It would carry a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. The charge is believed to be based not only on evidence that Trump played an active role in inciting the violence that took place that day, but on a vast body of evidence that links him to months of plotting to overturn the valid results of the 2020 elections. Testimony from key witnesses, including former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who is now believed to be a cooperating witness for Smith, and Steve Bannon, is believed to form the cornerstone of the special counsel's case. As with the espionage case in Mar-a-Lago, much of the evidence being leveled against Trump comes from Trump loyalists, like Attorney General Bill Barr, who has been critical in building the case against Trump. They've provided insight into Trump's state of mind in the days leading up to January the 6th, and have suggested that he was fully aware of the potential for violence. But indicting Trump is only the beginning. Smith may also implicate some of Trump's top lieutenants, including Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, Mike Flynn, John Eastman, Sidney Powell, amongst others, and also potentially acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller. But it's perhaps Capitol Hill where most of the shocking indictments may land, where the fates of Paul Gosar and Lauren Boebert loom large. Of course, if he's indicted, Trump would be the highest profile individual to face any charges in connection with the January the 6th attack. But the seditious conspiracy charge, which suggests that the former president was actively seeking to overthrow the government, Whatever the outcome of this investigation, one thing is clear. Attorney General Mary Garland and Special Counsel Jack Smith have come through on their commitment to investigate and charge anyone involved in Jan 6th. My special guest tonight is Megan Cuniff, who has been getting an inside look at the potential defense strategies for Trump and his lieutenants. Cuniff is observing the court proceedings to disbar John Eastman that's taking place in California. 
Hey, Megan, how are you? Can you hear me? Hey, I'm good. How are you? They just got over. I am so glad you made it onto the show. How was it? Was it exciting? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. There's an outstanding attorney-client privilege issue that the judge has been mulling for the last couple of days regarding Eastman and Donald Trump, because he does not have attorney-client privilege anymore with the Trump campaign, because that was waived by the GOP. But he does still have privilege with Trump, and he's really? fighting that when trying to decline to answer some questions. So the judge was going over some issues that she wants to explore tonight, and then she's going to address it further tomorrow morning. So that's going to be right out of the gate tomorrow. Well, so help me understand that, and then I'll give you a proper introduction. But the, so the he has privilege with Trump based on the fact that he was his lawyer, or that as the as the president's lawyer, or the or his own individual. Yeah, well, a classic attorney-client privilege where. You tell your attorney something he's not allowed to tell anyone else. So there are issues with questions that he's being asked where he doesn't want to answer the question because he feels it implicates right. attorney-client privilege. The question where this came up was based on Ronna McDaniels, the GOP chairwoman's testimony to the January 6th committee about conversations that Eastman had with other people regarding potentially recruiting alternative electors. We've all heard about the fake electors, the alternative electors that the GOP was hoping to move in to replace the traditional ones to try to upend the election results. And so the question from the state bar prosecutor to Eastman was, who have you talked to about that issue? And he invoked attorney-client privilege on it, was saying, and he also argued that it's not just Trump that the attorney-client privilege applies to. It could apply to other people around him who were working on his behalf. And the judge immediately said that, no, she doesn't think that's that that's the law at all. But there was an argument back and forth between she and the attorney, and there's issues to explore. And we're going to hear more about it right out of the gate tomorrow morning, it sounds like. That's really interesting. So let me tell everyone who Megan Cuniff, am I saying it correctly? Megan Cuniff, is that the right pronunciation? Yes, that's correct. She's a legend in her part of the world because she spends probably more hours in courtrooms than every single judge and lawyer because that's her beat and she does it incredibly well. Megan knows courtrooms and she knows that the law in Southern California, like nobody's business. And and we're thrilled she's here because you're getting a bit of an insight into the what could be the strategy for both Trump and many of his lieutenants if Jack Smith comes down with all these indictments that we're predicting he will in the next few days or weeks. The, those indictments will include possibly John Eastman will be one of those people that could be indicted in the January 6th whatever seditious conspiracy charges or other charges that Jack Smith decides to charge, what we're seeing in that courtroom is a little bit of a preview of what his defense might be. And so tell me a little bit, if you can, about what that is. What is John Eastman saying in in those hearings as he's being potentially disbarred? What's he saying as his defense? John Eastman's testimony about the the realness of his argument. He's really trying to show that he believed the arguments he was putting forth and that there was a legitimate debate about election fraud. And his attorney is working with the other witnesses to try to question them and show that these were actually legitimate issues and just a debate between between scholars and that Eastman was doing his job as an attorney by putting forth legal theories. So it's a question of how much weight is the state bar judge going to put in these alternate theories or these experts who are supporting his theories who are really fringe in their beliefs. They're not exactly mainstream at all. And the state bar prosecutors are trying to make the point that everyone in the mainstream has dismissed this, that there was no real legitimate issue here. So correct me if I'm wrong, does John Eastman still believe in all these 
theories that there is a way to have the vice president cast a vote and that you could have these fake slate of electors. Did he believe that's a legitimate way to operate within the law? He would say that's unexplored. That's still unresolved, that he can't say definitively, but that it's, a, it's an issue and a theory that he put forth in, in a legal strategy that he thought might be worth pursuing. But it was one of two options that he gave. The alternative electors, they were, also, they were thinking about seeing if Pence could delay for 10 days the certification of the vote to send it back to the states for investigation. So these are all theories that the state bar has called election officials. And then also Greg Jacob, Vice President Pence's legal counsel, former legal counsel, who was a big witness for them, just to try to show that these weren't real ideas, that they were legally baseless and that Eastman should have known it was legally baseless. But Eastman is really making the point that that's not true, that that these were real potential issues and he was just basically doing his job as an attorney. Does he say that he was asked by President Trump to give him these theories or does he just say that was his job and he was doing it? Yeah, he, he said that he was asked to present these theories and that his client was President Trump. So, right. so yeah, he says he was just working on behalf of his client. Interesting. And, and he came up with these theories by himself or he had these ex- experts that he, was, that he also showed in court? He had different research, different case law, that kind of thing. He's showing different reports, different sources that he relied on. So take us inside the courtroom. The picture we have of him is of him looking a little nutty with his, with a crazy hat, sort of a wilderness hat, if you will. And, uh, and on stage talking to the January the 6th crowd is probably the image we know him best for. It looks a little disheveled, looks like a smart guy, but probably a little wacky. What's he like in court and what's the feel like in court? It's a sterile environment. It's a newer courtroom. And I know the state bar was really prepared for Manhattan-like scene with Trump's indictment. They had extra people working. They were had an overflow room. They were prepared for protesters. But there really wasn't much attention at all. There was a group of maybe seven or eight reporters, if that, six or seven reporters, Associated Press, the legal publications. And then there was actually a reporter with Steve Bannon's war room who was there released the first couple of days. But I think with it being online, a lot of people are watching online. But Eastman had a few has had a few supporters in court and he doesn't have a hat on. He looks he looks about how I remember him looking when I would see him at various legal events in Orange County, just when I was reporting on Orange County legal community. And he was at Chapman University. Sometimes I would go to the Orange County Bar Association centers and he would be there. And he just looks like he, his face is really red. He's got the he's got the red face thing that some hmm. guys get. He just looks like a normal guy in a suit. And one issue here, I think, with the state bar judge is going to be perspective. And everything's relative, even if you don't want it to be. And another reporter asked me what the judge's background was, if she's in private practice when she's not doing these hearings. And I said, no, actually, it's a full time job. They have other hearing judges, too. But think about the bottom of the barrel of California attorneys. These are cases <laughs> that are getting any kind of attention. These are drug addicted attorneys, yeah. attorneys who are ripping off their clients. I, that, before Eastman's pretrial conference, she did a pretrial conference with that guy. He's in trouble for employing a disbarred lawyer. And she scolded him and said that the disbarred lawyer had actually like tried to call into the hearing and appear in it. And he said, oh, judge, I can't really control what she does. So these are like bottom of the barrel people that she's used to outright crimes and, th- and stealing from their clients. So with him not really being accused of stealing money from President Trump. It's definitely a different world for the state bar judge. And I think it's 
Yeah, I, I think it's a real question of how the experts are going to come across or the people that the defense witnesses that he's going to call to support his views. S- somebody remarked to me, you know, they, they said, I wonder if the judge knows what's coming because he's going to call some really fringe election deniers. Mm. But are they going to come across that way on Zoom or in the witness stand if they're just there in their suit and they've got some credentials and that kind of thing? But the judge has already shown skepticism about that by rejecting a couple of his experts, he was trying to get a CPA to testify as an expert and somebody else too. And she ruled that they didn't have the credentials for that. So she's already shown some skepticism of that. Does he still believe the elections were stolen? He definitely seems to. And he, he says there, there are questions. I guess he's careful not to say outright it was stolen. It's, oh, there's all these incidents of fraud and, okay. and we don't know and we need to do more investigation. Mm. But he thinks the president was completely justified in in doing the strategy of the fake electors and the January the 6th delay of the votes. So that was all, in his mind, a legitimate way to keep, uh, to keep power. He thinks it was a legitimate legal work on his behalf. And mm. these were just ideas that he was floating and that right. there were unexplored issues and that he was just doing his job as an attorney by presenting different options for the president to consider. Is there a sense in the courtroom that there is potentially these much more serious indictments coming his way, that this is a a disbarment, it's serious, but much more serious would be these other indictments if there's a seditious conspiracy kind of indictment that's brought down by Smith and company. Is there a sense that, you know, that, that he may be involved in this very historic case and that his own legal advice may be the the predicate for some of this downfall? Yeah, I think there is. I think it depends on who you talk to, because I think it's supporters, the three people who are there who are friends with them are not worried about anything like that. Some of the journalists who are really familiar with J6 are definitely wondering if that can happen. And then I'm just thinking back to the last time that I was in that state bar courtroom and I remarked on Twitter that it was what three or four years ago, there was an attorney lesser profile than him, but he made a splash because he represented Stormy Daniels, the porn star who sued President Trump over the hush money payment. Right, Michael, right, right. he's in prison now for stealing for clients, but his state bar hearing was there. And I remarked to somebody that, oh, remember when Evan Adi was arrested by the feds in a state bar hearing? Because that actually did happen. And we joke like, oh, don't know if that'll happen with Eastman. It's actually a pretty real possibility. I'm, I, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I don't think there's any kind of urgency like that, at least from the attendees, because it's sparsely attended. Mm-hmm. I think the state bar is definitely aware of some possible issues. And who knows, there's a lot of interest online. And like you said, a lot of people think that these indictments could be coming sooner than later. He did remark, talk to him after the first day. He was really open to talking to reporters and see it. He hasn't heard anything about a grand jury investigation or been asked to be, to go before the grand jury. So, so who knows? He could still be indicted and not go in front of the grand jury. Definitely. It does seem like there's one being impaneled and there's one, certainly Steve Bannon has been before one. And it seems like Bill Barr, even though he, you have to read between the lines, says that he sort of testified or perhaps testified, but you are forced to read between the lines on that one. And it does look like if they're going to do it, they have to do it fairly soon because there's not enough time before the next elections to really get any significant court time, one suspects. And this, I suspect they want to do it before the next election. So maybe that's not even possible, but certainly they want to try to get the indictments out well before any real election campaigning gets going, especially in the primaries. So that might be one of the reasons that people are focusing on the next few weeks. Eastman, of course, is not alone in this giant group of people that potentially plotted January the 6th and this coup attempt. 
we think of people like Roger Stone, Alex Jones, Michael Flynn, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and we've mentioned Steve Bannon. Did, did any of these names come up in the hearings? Do any of you mentioned Steve, but is there any others that may have come up? We did hear Rudy Giuliani a bit in Eastman's testimony because he was talking about meetings that they had prior to January 6th and just the activities going on. It wasn't a big focus of the testimony yet. He also hasn't finished testifying. There could be there could be more coming. His testimony was actually split up because of scheduling issues. They wanted to get Greg Jacob in. And then today we heard from election officials in Pennsylvania and also Arizona, Maricopa County, Phoenix. We should talk about Greg Jacobs. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about his testimony. This is the vice president's legal advisor, Vice President Pence. What did he say? He was talking about what he went through in the days before January 6th and the work that he did to determine whether Vice President Pence had any kind of power like this. The questions were about Pence's state of mind regarding his powers. And Jacob made it clear that Pence went into the Oval Office meeting on January 4th with John Eastman and Trump, not thinking that he had any kind of unilateral power to stop the certification of the election. And Jacob, who was wearing a Federalist Society tie, was talking about how he doesn't think the constitutional founders had, he thinks they did that intentionally. They would never centralize power like that and give one person the ability to stop the election. So they just thought it was totally contrary to the founding of the nation and that Pence just didn't think he could do it. And it was really establishing, again, trying to establish how outlandish Eastman's ideas were and the idea that he should have just known that it was a no-go. And does Jacobs or Eastman describe the process of how they came up with these theories? Is there, did Rudy Giuliani tell them to do it? Did, did Rudy and Sidney and Eastman sit around in a, in, a, in, a, in a bar somewhere and come up with all of this? Like, where did they come up with these theories and how did they decide that this was a strategy to go on? He testified a lot about the different research he did, the different issues, the historical facts surrounding it. But I think we might learn more about that as he continues mm -hmm. testifying, because I, I but also one of the points of the state bar prosecutor was I think it was more an emphasis on not the sources of his information, because the source of, of his information was a CPA's report about voter discrepancies in Georgia that was actually he'd reversed a couple of numbers. And the prosecutor was really focusing on bringing up all these other credible sources, mainstream sources, reports from the elect, election officials themselves that showed that his claims weren't true and asking Eastman, did you see this? Do you remember seeing this? And for a couple of them, Eastman said, oh, no, that he was sick in bed with 104 degree temperature. So he wouldn't have seen that. So huh. it was kind of like, do you believe that he was just was he just willfully ignoring this stuff? Because it goes against his defense that he was this well-researched scholar who was looking at this issue of huge public importance when he didn't see a lot of scholarly coverage, yeah. this issue of public importance. So when the Maricopa County officials showed up, was that what their questioning was about? Was them saying definitively that they weren't expecting any fraud and they hadn't seen any fraud? Yeah, they had Stephen Richer, who's the elected recorder in Maricopa County. He testified today about the steps that he took in the very beginning regarding the Dominion voting machines. I think that name, of course, rings a bell for anyone who's been paying attention to the news lately. But he detailed the quality checks that they did, the reports that they did, the research that they did to try to ensure that that these machines were intact and that the election was safe. And it, again, to really show that 
Eastman had no basis for this whatsoever. Mm. Any other mentions of any of these people on the screen we see now, like Roger Stone or Jones or Flynn, any of those people come up in the conversation at all? Hasn't come up too much at all yet. No, but again, I think we are going to hear more about it from Eastman, hopefully tomorrow. I think he's going to be back on the stand tomorrow. And then I think there's also, he's going to be testifying later on. They're going to call him as his own defense witness. So Hmm. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more from him. I want to play you a quick clip from Bill Barr in Face the Nation. It's very strong because a lot of the evidence comes from his own lawyers. And furthermore, there's evidence of him saying things that are completely incompatible with any idea that this was an innocent document dispute. Do you believe he lied to the Justice Department? Do I personally believe it? Yes, I do. And do you believe that that he continues to claim that he has all these privileges and rights under the Presidential Records Act? Is he mischaracterizing the act? (laughs) Absolutely. The legal theory by which he gets to take battle plans and sensitive national security information as his personal papers is absurd. It's just as wacky as the legal doctrine they came up with for having the vice president unilaterally determine who won the election. The whole purpose of the statute, the Presidential Records Act, is was to stop presidents from taking official documents out of the White House. It was passed after Watergate. That's the whole purpose of it. And therefore, it restricted what a president can take. It says it's purely private that had nothing to do with the deliberations of government policy. Obviously, these documents are not purely private. It's obvious. And they're not even now arguing that it's purely private. What they're saying is the president just has sweeping discretion to say they are, even though they squarely don't fall within the definition. It's an absurd argument. So that goes to a different argument, of course, Megan. But he does mention that the Eastman theories were wacky. And that was Bill Parr's words for what they were trying to come up with for January, uh, leading up to January the 6th. Any thoughts on that whole comment? I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Yeah, like you said, I don't think that's a good endorsement of any kind of defense Trump might try to muster regarding the document case in Mm -hmm. Florida. That looks pretty damning for him. I think Barr's assessment is pretty right on and also probably just driven by some factually speaking, but it's also probably driven by some personal animosity toward Trump over the years. But it it, it doesn't seem like he said anything that's inaccurate at at all. It seems like this document case is pretty serious and it was pretty blatant. The reports that we've seen, how alarmed federal prosecutors were when they saw this initially and they jumped on it immediately because obviously this is a matter of huge importance. January the 6th cast of characters is very large. I did a sheet. This is only some of the characters a while back. And there's Mr. Eastman on the middle next to Rudy Giuliani above the Willard. This is a huge cast of characters that all or some may face sedition charges now that they are opening the door, as many are speculating, opening the door to Donald Trump being indicted on sedition charges. Now, you've got a crew of people who sit in the in the Congress, who sit in the House that might all find themselves or some of them might find themselves under some charges there, including Boebert, who on the day of the event of January the 6th was telling people where the Speaker of the House was invoking 1776. A lot of people would say that's participating in this edition. And you've got a lot of people on the inside of the White House there, the Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn characters, those characters we've discussed before. We know, of course, that the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is has turned to state witness and he's going to be testifying for Jack Smith. But he knows a lot of stuff about what happened over the weeks before January the 6th. Did his name come up or do any of the big named Congress people come up in any of Eastman's testimony? Yeah, we did hear about Mark Meadows. And what comes to mind immediately is when Greg Jacob was 
was testifying, he mentioned that Mark Meadows came into the Oval Office during the January 4th meeting, but it was on another topic. He wasn't participating in the meeting. He just walked in and walked out. And Eastman so far hasn't focused too much on on those individuals. But again, I think we're still really early in his testimony. So we're going to be hearing more. But Eastman is so focused on his own research, his own legal work, and also defending and sparring with the prosecutors about their analysis and assessment of the election situation. Will the findings here where he gets barred or disbarred, will they play any role in the upcoming, if there is a January the 6th indictment, if there's a trial there, would any of this stuff actually play a role? Or was just sort of, well, would this all disappear into the ether and they'll start again? I, I don't think the actual disbarment proceeding would be mentioned in any kind of Trump criminal trial. I do think just the issues that we're hearing about here are a preview of what we might hear about in any kind of trials that could eventually come from any possible indictments over the January 6th, for sure. I, again, I don't think we'd ever hear about Eastman's disbarment proceeding specifically, but the topics we're hearing about, for right. sure. And any of the Congress people, the Boberts and the Gosars and that whole crowd, is there any mention of their names? Is that, that was uh, not, It hasn't been too much of a focus, although we did hear a lot about, not a lot, but some about Sidney Powell today from the Maricopa County recorder, oh, yeah? Stephen, because they were asking about diminutive the Dominican voting machines and who was, and he kept saying that somebody really wanted to make that company the boogeyman. And they mentioned Sidney Powell and he said, oh gosh, she was one of the loudest critics in the country, loudest voices in the country. And ju just talking about the conspiracy around the voting machine. So we did mm. hear about Sidney Powell in that respect. I know you have to run, but let me ask you just one more quick question. There is a lot of controversy around the Supreme Court this week. Ginny Thomas is a name that has sort of escaped our attention a little bit in the last few weeks, although she certainly ca captured our attention before that. And Cleta Mitchell is another one that comes up a lot. If I'm not mistaken, Eastman was a, was pretty close to Mr. Thomas or Justice Thomas and Ginny Thomas and also close to Cleta. He was. And we've seen emails that he was in correspondence with Ginny before that. We have not seen that yet in the hearing, but I do think we're going to be hearing about more emails, the Chapman University emails that were the subject of the big case with Judge David Carter, where he issued the rulings about Trump and Eastman likely committing crimes, destruction of a government proceeding, conspiracy hmm. charges. We're going to be seeing some of those emails during the examination of Eastman. So it's very possible the prosecutors could bring up his correspondence with Jenny Thomas in the weeks after the election and before January 6th. Yeah, that would be really interesting if they do. Tell people where they can find your incredible work, because you do really remarkable and very unique work, because everyone reads your publication, your online publication gets to get a real sense of what it's like inside the courtroom. You sit there for hours, watching was, must be quite tedious at times, and yet you come up with really amazing dramatic recounts of what happens. So tell people where they can find your work, and then I'll happily share the information as well in the link below. Legalaffairsandtrials.com, www.legalaffairsandtrials.com. Just started it in the last six months and I'm building it up into a hub for legal affairs and trials coverage in Southern California, big cases in LA and Orange County, the celebrity cases, but then also a lot of federal white collar crime cases because the Central District is the rival to the Southern District of New York, but it just doesn't have the press corps that the Southern District of New York does. So there's a lot of big cases that kind of fly under the radar in Los Angeles federal court that I'm trying to get a hold of. So I've also got a YouTube channel that I'm trying to yeah. share stories and a different form of reporting on there. Twitter, I try to 
keep people updated on Twitter, but YouTube and Substack, my legalaffairsandtrials.com are the way to go. And anything helps support independent journalism. The stories that I do on those websites are just not the kind of stories that I'd be allowed to do on other other mediums, just the editing that I face and the space constraints. I understand completely. That's exactly why I do the work I do here is because you just can't tell the same stories in traditional newsrooms and they just won't let you do it. So Megan Cunef, thank you very much for being here tonight. Thanks for your insights in today's testimony. Hopefully we'll have you back as this rolling coverage of the Trump trials continues. It's not going away. But thank you very much for being here. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. And that's the end of the show tonight. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you again next time on Narrative. Every minute of Narrative's reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Narrative, where truth lives.